Well, the debate continues to unfold in this country over medical assistance in dying. The government proposed a new piece of legislation. It came to the Senate. The Senate proposed uh, some amendments. The government said maybe yes, maybe no to some of them, no to others. And now it is back um, in the hands of a court again as the government has asked for more time uh, to have this debate in the House of Commons and send it back to the Senate. If you're confused, you should be. That's how the political system in Canada works. A few weeks ago, you'll remember, we talked with a man by the name of Ron Posno. He is a former RCAF pilot. He was a teacher, a special ed teacher, an advocate with people, for people with uh, special needs. And he has been uh, a one-man army on this whole question of medical assistance in dying. He has been diagnosed himself with uh, mild cognitive impairment, which is, of course, a precursor to dementia. So we want to catch up with Ron and find out what you're thinking. You've watched the last week what happened in the Senate with the uh, embrace, the really quite significant embrace of expanding the options here, uh, particularly on the question of advanced requests. And it went back to the government and they said, mm, not so fast. Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts today? Well, my thoughts are quite personal. With my movement into dementia, mm -hmm. um, I, I, for, for me personally, and I, I don't mind saying for me personally, because I've always identified it as a personal choice. But with my personal choice becoming public, I have received responses from more than 5,000 people right across this country, all supporting the need for people with dementia to have access to medical assistance in dying. Now, to make that possible, realistically possible. We have to have what, what people have been calling advanced request. Mm -hmm. So that means that here I am, almost five years after being diagnosed, I am still mostly cognitively capable. I can make up my mind about a lot of things. I can't do some things. My, my mind is saying being able to make decisions about myself, I can I've made up my mind. I'd like to ask for medical assistance in dying. I want to put in a formal request. I want my formal request accepted. I don't want to die now. Right. That's the whole point. That is I the want whole to point. die <laughs> when I have a need for that. I've spelled options. They're right in my personal attorney for health. They're all laid out for people to see, anybody to can see. Certainly my personal attorney can see them. My physician can see them. Anybody can see them. These are eight conditions under which I do not wish to live anymore. In other words, administer assistance in dying. Now, I say that's me. Mm -hmm. But, but it's, as, as there's say, lots also, of you. <laughs> I've also been supported by more than 5,000 people across this country. And then, <laughs> interesting, it's caught attention in the United States. And, of course, there are a number of people there also facing these similar kinds of issues. What's fundamental to me is, one, I, I want and need made 
to acknowledge the fact that dementia is a disease. Well, it's not really a disease. It's a bunch of diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and all those. Mm -hmm. But all these lead to death. And from facing that, that those last few years of dying are full of agony and pain. I can't reckon. I won't be able to recognize people. I can't talk to people. I can't interact with life. People are going to have to feed me. People are going to have to change my diaper. I don't yeah. want to live like that. This is the that's crux of, of what we, so it is a choice. I it, need that's, advanced request. That's the whole issue. And that's where we, we get to advanced request, which is right now um, it's, it's this catch 22, particularly and specifically for people with dementia, with Alzheimer's, with cognitive conditions, neurodegenerative cognitive conditions. And you're in this bind where you can't ask for it before because you're not considered sick. And so you wouldn't be a candidate. And then once you're diagnosed, you're considered not competent because you have a condition, a neurodegenerative condition. But as Ron has just said, You've been five years with this and you may be another five years before any significant symptoms start to overtake your life. You're perfectly capable of making a decision at this point. Absolutely. That's what that's what I'm afraid to say exactly. But so many of our decision makers are working on the basis of some kind of ignorance or prejudice. (laughs) They don't. No, they don't understand. They seem to be unwilling to accept it. That when you are assessed or diagnosed with dementia, your life doesn't change. You're the same the day afterwards as you were the day before you were assessed. Exactly. So you've got anywhere, certainly with with most kinds of dementia, there are some that are very short, but most kinds of dementia, you've got five to 10 years and would you are cognitively able, you can be disabled in a number of other kinds of things. Like right now, I, I can't handwrite. Mm. My small motor skills have gone. I can't do that. But I can still go to the doctor and say, look, I have a sore throat. Can you help me out? I can still go to the doctor and say, look, I have dementia. I know I'm going to need it later on. I want to have a, approval. To get that one. Thank you very much. When when you need it. It's I think it's important that we go back to what actually started this whole discussion, uh, the current one. And this was a Supreme Court decision um, that was in 2015 that basically said a person should be allowed to make this request. If there can if there's condition is going to inevitably lead to death and if they're going to suffer from severe pain or loss of ability. It was a pretty broad statement that they made and it has been governments that that has restrained it and built a wall around it and made it smaller. Um, we, we somehow need to get back to where we started. Exactly right. We need to go back to what the Supreme Court directed the federal government to change. They said people should live a life of unendurable pain and agony. They said, now, 
You can't help this person commit suicide unless you are a doctor. So change the law and allow medical staff has to help you die. That's all that has to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Now, when when it came up for discussion in 2016, our lawmakers got involved and they brought yeah. in all kinds of issues that didn't have anything to do with what the Supreme Court said. Nothing. They brought up a concept of foreseeable death. Right. Well, for years, we are for the <laughs> off four years, five years since then, we've argued what is foreseeable death. Right. Death All our deaths are foreseeable. Yeah, <laughs> we are right. going to die, whether it's in a car accident or of dementia or of cancer, there and will when, be an end. And when you're 81 years of age, that's a little more foreseeable than when <laughs> I was 75. So, yeah. so, but it, so that was a stupid kind of thing. Made as a law, as far as I was concerned, I described it as a failure in design. Mm-hmm. It's a good way to put it. Well-intentioned, but it yeah. was designed to fail. And I, I don't want to take up everybody's time, but we can go through them item by item as to what those failures constituted. Bill C-7 was put out because the court court said Quebec Superior Court said we recognize these errors now here's one I want you to fix so they directed the federal government to fix the law again so Bill C-7 was supposed to fix the law well now it got into a wealth not a wealth a dearth terrible yes of reason logic and nothing to do with what the Supreme Court said in the first place we got people worrying about the fact that, uh, well, we might have a mental illness. We can't allow that. So we can't even consider that. It's not totally disregarding the fact that we have people suffering terribly because we have not the means to support them in mental illness. So why should these people be forced to die sufferably because we don't deal with their needs? So. These social welfare cases should be dealt for in a separate kind of legislation. Mm-hmm. Made is about doctors and people in need, period. Yeah, regardless of the condition. And this is the contradictory thing we see from government as well, which is they've recognized kind of against their will by accepting that in, in two years they'll grant the same kind of access for those folks that have mental illnesses, not just physical illnesses, but they didn't define it. And and secondly, um, so they've already acknowledged that they're they're discriminatory, perhaps they're unconstitutional in their approach. And nowhere is that clear. But in the case of dementia and Alzheimer's, it's complete discrimination. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, to discriminate because somebody, I'll, I'll enlarge, because I have dementia, you, why can you take my rights away? Right. As Canadian, I'm entitled to all the rights of any Canadian. Because I have dementia doesn't push me out. Particularly, that, as you say, in those early stages where your, your ability is just as it was yesterday or the day before and will be tomorrow. That's right. Now, Face told me I can't have mental assistance in dying, medical assistance in dying, sorry, because 
I am mentally incompetent, and that's demonstrable that I've reached that stage of being mentally incompetent. Fine, I accept that. But I want the right to ask when I am competent. In advance, exactly. In advance. So, and, you know, we've talked about this before. It's very similar to what we've already and almost everybody has accepted in our society, a DNR, a do not resuscitate. If you go to win have, to have surgery or if you've got it in your living will because you might be in a car accident, we accept the idea that you can say do not resuscitate me exactly. in the following circumstances. Exactly. Yeah. A DNR, I, I, we, <laughs> I, you know, lawyers, I'm not one. But one of the things I accept is that our practice of law right across this country in every level of court is built upon precedent. Right. What did the judges decide before? That would give the current judge direction to proceed. A DNR was accepted years ago. Yeah. I can say in a DNR, I do not wish to be resuscitated. That means, bottom line, I want to die. If I don't improve immediately, yeah. I and want if I to can't die. live a life with dignity, then please let me die with one. Yeah. Exactly. You've, you've written something, um, which uh, it, it's it's a small line, but I think it's really important. Made and medical assistance dying in this bill are not measures of personal failure. There may be measures of governmental failure, but not personal failure, because this is a question of choice for people who are suffering intolerably or know that they will. And they've simply had enough of life and its difficulties. Exactly. And who who can make that decision? That's me. Mm -hmm. And in discussion, with the medical people who are supporting me in my problems. So I discuss that with the gerontologist that backs me up in terms of assessment. I know it's exactly what my life is going to be. I don't need to discuss this with other people. This is the issue that's come up for me. I know you're getting a lot of emails and so am I and people saying, well, you know, we can't just make this simple. You can't just, you know, call up and say, I want to access medical assistance in dying. It does not work that way. There is a very long, complicated process of assessment with the involvement of doctors and your family and medical professionals of all sorts, very highly trained assessors. This is done with with thought, with lots of thought. And complete support of the medical profession. I'm not talking about those few uh, <laughs> medical practitioners who are conscientious objectors. They're right. not going to be involved in this. So I, don't even think about them. Think about the doctors who are providing those care, the palliative care doctors. Exactly. Who provide me with care, real care. They're the ones who know what my issues are and where we're at. It's their support that are leading me to a decision that of, of and I, I use this and maybe you'll you picked it up from my, I'm living now. I can interact with the world. I can talk. I can read. I can see things. I can feel things. But my life, because my mind is deteriorating is going to deteriorate as well to where the point my life living becomes existence. Right. 
Not the same as living. No, not at all. And what you're going to do is terminate my existence. Thank you. My existence means that I'm totally, entirely dependent upon others to care for me in the most fundamental kinds of ways, in terms of feeding, care, washing, Mm -hmm. everything. So there's no regret here. Yeah. My my life, yes. I I don't like having dementia. That's but that's what happens. People don't like having cancer either. Exactly. Exactly. And you see, this would help a lot of people, and not just the people with dementia, but people with cancer and other kinds of skill uh, disease problems, injury. They can, if they had advantage to it, they could provide an advanced request. With people with cancer, when they're in stage two or three, they say, hey, this is not getting any better. If it gets worse and goes four and we can't cure it, I want to die. They can, they can and should be able to put in an advanced request, a DNR aspect, and say, I want to go when, it, when I get there. Thank you very much. You raised this the last time we spoke, and we'll end on it today, that what you're asking for, what I'm looking for in the legislative way is a, is, is a right for people to make that choice in advance so that they don't have to make decisions too early. So no. they don't have to find some other way to end their life, whether it's, you know, with pills or guns or walking into. We don't need to force people into that situation. Give them the right to make this call so that they can live without fear and without anxiety. Right. So I'm saying to our lawmakers in Ottawa, get back to first base. First base is what did the court ask for? Change the law to allow physicians to provide medical assistance to dying. Everything else has nothing to do with it. Ron, I'll tell you, you've got one of the sharpest, clearest minds on this topic because I talk to an awful lot of people every day. And I thank you for being such a, a tireless advocate and fighter on this issue. We're going to keep going. Okay. Good. Ron Posno. Thank you so much. We'll talk again soon. I am sure. Coming up next, Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos with the latest polls on how the Canadian public feels about medical assistance in dying. So the new polling numbers show this, a large majority, 86% of Canadians support the Supreme Court of Canada's decision about medical assistance in dying, which of course is a much broader uh, description than what the government's legislation is. CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, Daryl Bricker, a social political researcher. He's author of, I don't know, six or eight books. I can't remember, but next was your last one. And it's really worth a read if you haven't done that. So Daryl, thank you for uh, doing this. You did these uh, this polling at the behest of dying with dignity. Tell me what you found. Like when we say large majority, is it significant in your terms? Is it strong? Is it weak? Where are we on this? 
Uh, we do have very strong support for uh, assisted dying in this in this country. Eighty-seven uh, percent uh, support the uh, Carter versus Canada decision from the Supreme Court. So, uh, and that's statistically unchanged from last year. You said eighty-six, but I mean it's basically the same number. It okay. hasn't changed. Uh, but um, what we're also seeing is that as you go down the various options and the conditions, support remains consistently high. I mean, there are some things where people do waver a little bit, but overall, uh, people want to see the choice in the hands of the individual who's concerned. The the two big issues that have emerged, or maybe three, I'll put it that way, uh, in the debate um, this time around, and I'm talking about in the House of Commons and in the Senate, and, and to some extent in the public, is whether or not people with mental illness should be allowed to make this choice uh, to do this and whether or not the disabled might be discriminated against and this system might be used against them. And then my hobby horse, of course, which is advanced directives, that we should be able to ask for this in advance, undo that catch-22 for people who have dementia and, and Alzheimer's. So have you got anything specific that looks at it through each of those lenses? Yeah. So in terms of advanced requests with those for, uh, you know, grievous and uh, conditions that can't be reversed going forward, 83% support, support for an advanced request, even if there are no, uh, you know, uh, uh, conditions that, uh, that somebody is suffering from, but somebody just wants to have it written down, uh, that they would uh, like uh, mm-hmm. some form of assisted dying at 76%. Uh, support for those with uh, mental illness as the sole condition, still really high at 65, although lower. And support even for those people who are mature minors at 64%. So basically what you see in all of this, uh, Senator, is that, uh, that the public wants the, uh, the option in the hands of the, the, the people who are personally affected and is pretty open about uh, the, um, the conditions under which people should be able to make this request. I mean, that's sort of at the core of this argument here, which I feel like we have to keep saying over and over again, because it's obvious to me, but 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 obviously not to many others, is this is a question of choice. Nobody's trying to impose this on anybody. If I choose this for myself, uh, that's on me. I'm not trying to say you need to go down this road. Yeah, and that's basically what this says. And the, and, uh, the general principle is supported overall. And even when you get into some of these specific conditions, and some of these are, you know, pretty uh, significant, uh, mm-hmm. I would say, mor- moral quandaries. But uh, really? I, I, the, what, what the public's saying to us is even though it is a moral quandary, the solution to it is in the hand of the individual who's affected. What what do you think accounts for this? Because, you know, there's all sorts of as as we all get older and live longer. I mean, I've gone through this now with two parents where they had no option uh, for maids. So I've seen it firsthand. I've also had uh, people that I know use this option subsequently. Um, we I think we're all sort of saying, look, medicine is going to keep us alive a lot longer than we may actually be living in the way that uh, we have come to appreciate that. Well, there's a real clue in the data, Senator, and that's uh, age. So yeah. the people who are most uh, strongly committed to this are older Canadians. And which is interesting because generally when you look at something like change, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, usually older Canadians are the, uh, the population that's the most reluctant to change. But this is one of those areas, uh, probably because they, they know in their own lives and in the lives of probably their close acquaintances and, and friends who are probably in their same peer group that, uh, that we're uh, more likely to be facing this type of situation in the nearer term if you're in that category. And the idea that they would have that choice is something that's appealing to them. Ron, who we just spoke to, uh, and and you'd like him, of course, the Air Force vet and all the rest, um, very committed on that side. He's 81. He said in the last week to 10 days, as all this uh, debate has unfolded again, he said something like 5,000 emails from obviously people some of which will be in his age group saying, you know, we've got to make this happen. We've got to get back to this being a pretty simple, straightforward question of choice that the Supreme Court laid out in 2015. Yeah. And I I think, uh, you know, Ron is, pretty much on the money uh, where it, when, it, when it comes to what Canadians happen to think about this, uh, you know, obviously life and death is always a very controversial yeah. issue when you go out and you test it. But at some point when people are in the situation in which they're considering what they'd like to see for themselves, uh, basically what they're telling us in the polling is uh, this is the choice of the individual, i.e. me. Yeah. Uh, and I want to have a fairly wide range of opportunities uh, to to make a choice about my own life. When we had this, uh, the vote on the amendments in the Senate, it really was the real first case of this being a completely nonpartisan vote. There was support from all far corners. It's not parties anymore so much as groups in the Senate now. What are you seeing about that is in this poll when you look at political lines? And then I want to ask you about religious lines as well. Yeah, we're not seeing that there's a lot of political uh, um, aspects to this. The things that really drive whether or not somebody uh, is uh, positive or negative about this particular issue tends to basically be either, uh, you know, first of all, awareness Mm -hmm. and and secondly, age. Uh, So if you want to look at the demographic uh, uh, overlay to all of this or, you know, political overlay or overlay or sociological overlay, it really does relate to age. I mean, we even separated people who are in the LGBTQ2 community, uh, people who are in the BIPOC community. I mean, there's consensus across all of these groups, people with disabilities. We asked them um, and, uh, you know, they're basically the same pattern as you would see for the general population. I'm just looking at the numbers here. NDP, 88 percent, liberal, 87 percent, conservative, 82 percent. Yeah, there's no partisan. That's why I said there's no partisan element to this. So uh, there's a there's a I would say a growing consensus in Canada uh, that uh, that this should be an option for anybody who wants to make this kind of choice. Now, obviously, individual cases, people may have queries one way or the other, or uh, may take different positions when uh, when you're dealing with this in uh, uh, you know when it comes up. But when you ask people based on principle and when they're evaluating it in terms of their own personal situation, you can see that they want to have the choice. So what do we see then in religious communities? You've talked about, you know, this isn't a a very intense moral or ethical question. Uh, How does it break down there? It's pretty consistent across a religious affiliation. The people who tend to be the lowest on this are actually people without a religious affiliation, believe it or not. And I think that that's basically because they don't really have a strong opinion uh, or that they may be less aware of some of some of these issues. Uh, but uh, no, religion's not the thing. It's age. So Catholics, Protestants, doesn't matter. 
Right. I mean, if somebody is, you know, obviously uh, very uh, uh, has very strong religious views and, you know, it's a big part of their life. And this would be something that would be a moral question for them as Mm -hmm. opposed to a a personal question. They may have a different point of view. But if you're asking, you know, across the general population, the average Catholic, the average Protestant, the average person of another faith, it's not there's not really what I would consider consider to be a meaningful uh, difference. And no regional differences that are significant. Lots of support in Quebec, we see. Yeah, Quebec t- tends to be one that's a bit of uh, uh, more, I would say, engaged in this. And given some mm-hmm. of the issues that uh, that have uh, come up in the news recently in the province of Quebec, you can understand why. But the uh, but uh, it, it's not because it's raising questions in the minds of the public uh, in the province of Quebec as to whether or not uh, this should be a right. It actually demonstrates that there's a stronger right when people desire for the right when mm-hmm. people really do consider it. Well, that's what folks are saying, particularly those like in your numbers here, those with a chronic physical or mental condition or disability. Again, it's 84 percent. Yeah. And and uh, again, as we said at the start, you know, wow. uh, people who are older in which this yeah. is probably something that's being contemplated. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, to, to me, uh, the public opinion environment on this one is really clear. That doesn't mean, however, that there aren't strong uh, uh, groups of uh, uh, within the population, small groups in the population mm-hmm. uh, that could have very contrary views to this. But if you're asking whether or not they actually represent the overall Canadian population, no, they do not. Well, were you able to uh, pick out in any significant way healthcare professionals or practitioners, people who deal with this issue on a daily basis? Yeah, they're they're pretty well aligned with the Canadian population okay. again. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of data here, all adding up to the same thing. Uh, quite frankly, Senator, when you get 87 support percent support on anything, that means there's only 13 percent to spread around to the people who are on the other side. What about I'm just going to I just want to drill down on one other little issue, if I could, which is because Ron was just talking about it. So it reminded me like what he wants the right to do is go in now in his uh, in a rational state of mind and say when the following conditions are met, when I don't recognize myself, when I don't recognize my family, when I can't feed or care for myself and I'm lying in a bed, um, really not cognizant of the world and he wants to be able to spell that out because he will lose the ability to consent obviously at some point so will people who are in a heavily medicated state or perhaps have a stroke so is there any nuance that comes up in there yeah you see the the more conditional ones like for example uh, even pushing it further than where Ron pushed it, which is uh, mature minors making that mm-hmm. decision. Well, 64% of the Canadian population supports it, but that still means that 36% are are saying, you know, hold on a second here. This yeah. is more closer to a six and four situation as opposed to a, a 90-10 situation, which you're seeing on the overall principle. So uh, as I said before, uh, you know, individual circumstances and specific cases may elicit different types of opinions on some of these things. But when you talk about the overall principle and when you talk about people thinking about their own lives, it's pretty clear where they stand. Now, Ipsos is the third largest market research company in the world. You do politics in countries everywhere, including this one. It is my experience in life that when a parade has formed, politicians generally like to run to the front of it and then lead it on down the road. Why do we seem to be seeing the opposite effect here? The parade has formed. 
Yeah, that's that's really an interesting question. I I don't see any evidence in the data that I'm looking at uh, in this study that suggests that there is a, a partisan motivation right. uh, that would lead somebody in a particular direction. Um, I, I don't know uh, what what the motivation would be, but it seems to me that uh, when you get to nine and ten Canadians thinking that something's a good idea, uh, you know the, the the debate is in 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 uh, I would say in, in terms of principle is is already been decided. It's it's odd because I guess the only thing you can conclude then that government's decisions or lack thereof are are because in some way they're captive to the very small groups, as you say, the one in 10, not the nine in 10. Well, that's, that's the beautiful thing about doing research in which you go out and you just do honest, <laughs> ask people honest questions without a, a motivation for coming up with a particular answer. I mean, the data, the data tells you what it is that, uh, uh, that the, the public is thinking. Yep. And any fair-minded person who was going out and doing this survey would have done it exactly the same way that it was done here. And, um, that, you know, the conclusion that one would have to reach looking at the data uh, is that uh, Canadians are pretty well aligned on one particular uh, point of view, which is that uh, more freedom, not not less, and that the consent uh, and the decision lies in the hand of the individual. Uh, they do have some conditions. I mean, there are some yep. worries about minors. There are some worries about sure. you know people who decide because of mental illness being the only reason uh, that they would want to to end their lives. That maybe there should be some questions to ask there. But overall, even in those uh, two instances, two thirds of Canadians saying that the the right should be allowed. It's amazing. Daryl, thanks very much for taking this time and walking us through the numbers because you love the headlines, 86, 87 percent support. And, but breaking it down and really figuring that out is is very helpful. So Daryl Bricker, from the CEO of uh, Ipsos, taking a look at this. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Hunter. Yeah, it's great to see you. All right. In just a moment, we'll be back with Jocelyn Downey, professor of law and medicine at Dalhousie. Dr. Jocelyn Downey is a professor of law and medicine at Dalhousie University. She has made significant contributions uh, on the whole issue of medical assistance in dying, playing a role in the Carter versus Canada case, which led to the legalization of medical assistance in dying in Canada in 2015. So we will get into that. She stays uh, on this issue. Uh, also a member of the Order of Canada. I think I should just mention that as well. So th- <laughs> thanks for uh, being with us, Dr. Downey. This is terrific. We have just spoken with um, Daryl Bricker, and we've just gone over the numbers in the poll done for uh, Dying with Dignity. This is overwhelmingly supported by the Canadian public, this whole issue of medical assistance in dying. What, what do you make of the endless debate and extensions and delays and rejections of amendments and all of that kind of stuff. Where Give us your lay of the land. Uh, it's enormously frustrating because <laughs> I actually would say at this point, we're looking at an inevitable result and yet we are having continuing delays, which means that individuals are going to continue to suffer through these delays and, and, and we're going to end up in the same place. And I also say it's frustrating that we're seeing a lot of attempts to relitigate battles that have already mm-hmm. been 
had. And so while I agree, I, I, I'm sympathetic to people disagreeing on these issues. I think that once something has been settled by the court, settled by Parliament, as it was with Carter and C-14, we need to move on and figure out how do we do it well, as opposed to fighting about whether we do something. Yeah, that's the issue. And just talking again with Ron Posno today, and he's such an advocate, and, you know, he's 81, he's moving from um, cognitive impairment into the stage of dementia. He's perfectly capable of making a decision about his future, has Mm -hmm. been so clear on this. And he just says, take us back to the Supreme Court decision. They did settle it. Yeah. And, you know, if things go as I think they may, which is that the amendments that came over from the Senate are responded to in the way that government has said they're going to, and they come back to the Senate, they'll pass, and we will basically be back at Carter. Yeah. So we've gone nowhere, and we'll have uh, signed up for two years more study and debate and discussion and testimony and hearings. Yeah, I mean, what should have happened, I think, is back with C-14, if they got it right with C-14 and not had put in reasonably foreseeable, we then wouldn't have had all these fights, and they could have spent the time reflecting on how do we develop an advanced request regime, which is very robust, it protects people, but it does allow people like Ron Posno to access made through a request made in advance of fasting. I'm just going to put this on the record for everybody who may be listening here. The Supreme Court um, was speaking, I think, for everybody, including the disabled, when it ruled, and make sure I've got this right, the existing Canadian Criminal Code's prohibitions on voluntary euthanasia, Section 14, and assisted suicide, Section 241B, violate the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the new law should permit physician-assisted death for a competent adult who is, one, clearly has consented to the termination of life, and two, has a grievous medical condition, including illness, disease, or disability that is irremediable, means cannot be alleviated by means acceptable to the individual, and causes enduring suffering that is intolerable. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I remember at one point, during the debates about C-14, um, the then justice minister said in sort of ter- incredulous terms, well, we couldn't just cut and paste from the Supreme Court decision. And I screamed at my monitor, you could. That would have been a great idea. That would have worked. It would have worked. We would have had grievous and irremediable medical condition, yeah. enduring and intolerable suffering, competent adults, and be settled. And then move on to the more complex public policy issues that that the Canadians are st- are already on board with, but they require yeah. a little more um, sophisticated regulatory yeah. to be wrapped around them. I want to ask you about not just the legal issues, but the ethical, mm-hmm. ethical and moral side, because you look at this, even inside the numbers in the poll, it was quite clear when it came to even mental illness, but certainly with advanced requests too, that people have, you know, they may have some concerns about this. Are you really in the right frame of mind? You know, but in the end, their position was, it's the individual's choice. It's not for me to impose my views. Mm-hmm. Precisely. And there, there is, I think, a, an understanding that individuals, it's only for individuals who have capacity at the time they're making the choice, whether the choice mm-hmm. is made at the moment or made through an advance request. 
nobody yeah. is talking about involuntary euthanasia or non-voluntary euthanasia or euthanasia for minors, as was suggested. I, you know, for young children, yes. as was suggested, yes. I support in the Senate, which of course is ridiculous. <laughs> um, so, so people, the, the public get that and they believe in what was behind the Carter decision, which is this sense of responding to um, suffering, intolerable suffering, and allowing the decision about what to do about intolerable suffering to rest with the individual who's capable. And that is what should just inform our public policy. What do you think is going to break this logjam? I mean, does it now take another individual to go back through the court system? We've seen what's happened in Quebec while we're all having this discussion again. And we have this new piece of legislation now, C7. It's because people went to court and said this is unconstitutional. You can't take some of us out of the out of the system. Um, is that what it's going to take? I hope not at this point. I, I'm a Pollyanna, so <laughs> I believe um, that where we're going to land is that uh, by March 26th, we will have the mental illness issue somewhat resolved in the sense that if the sunset clause is accepted, as the government has said they will, and then right. back, and at 24 months, I anticipate the Senate would accept that expansion from 18 mm-hmm. from 18. So mental illness, I think you won't see litigation over that because people will say it's people who are suffering. There's very real suffering that will happen for the next 24 months. But I don't think, you know, it takes so long to go to court for one thing. Right. I don't think we'll see litigation on that. Then the, the pieces that are left out would be the mature minors. Yeah, I think there's going to be thoughtful review of that. And what we will see at the end of the review is exactly what we saw at the end of the Provincial Territorial Expert Advisory Group review and the Special Joint Committee of the House and Senate review, which said you can't disallow mature minors from having access. You have to allow mature minors. So I think we may see that 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 committee will recommend um, that mature minors, and everybody has to understand this, that that a mature minor is someone who by definition has the decision-making capacity of the 22-year-old, of the adult. So that's key. Then I think also, and this is where I'm optimistic, I think that this review will lead to recommendations, again, just like the Provincial Territorial Expert Advisory Group, just like the Special Joint Committee. So these groups that have consulted, listened to experts, reflected on the issues, been asked to make recommendations, recommended advance requests. And I think we'll see uh, without litigation, I think that we will see recommendations uh, for the for the um, inclusion of a robust advance request regime, which is broader than the final consent waiver, which is in this legislation right now. So saying that if as long as you already meet all of the criteria mm-hmm. and your natural death is reasonably foreseeable, it's it's they call it a final consent waiver, but it's an right. advance request that Correct. that will be expanded. Um, I think it will likely, if I'm gazing in a crystal ball, only be expanded so far as to be once you have a grievous, once you have a diagnosis mm-hmm. with a serious incurable condition then then you will be able to. So it's not me today saying I'm doing my advance request for MAID. I have no idea what's going to happen to me. But if this happens or this happens or this happens, then I want MAID. I don't think it will go that far. But I do think it'll be on the day I have a diagnosis of dementia, for instance, Mm -hmm. I would be able to say, 
into the future, this is this is what I want. Because that's the catch-22, as you know. This is sort of why it's my, my own hobby horse, which is mm-hmm. on, on dementia or Alzheimer's. You can't ask before and you're disqualified after the diagnosis. So you think there's a way to say after the diagnosis, we can still have this discussion. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. and I'd say two things to that. One is that that's exactly what these the provincial territorial group and the special joint mm-hmm. committee recommended. They said once you have the condition, you have decision making capacity. Correct. In early stage of the diagnosis yes. for yeah. sure. So so yes, that. But the other thing I want to say is um, I actually think people need to understand that even with dementia and under C fourteen and under C seven, the new the new legislation, you can have access to MAID. Right, because it's not the case that you you can never have a circumstance where you meet the eligibility criteria, your serious and incurable condition, advanced state of decline, suffering, and you and you don't have capacity. So we have something that's been developed by the clinicians in Canada called the 10 minutes to midnight protocol, which is the clinician follows you and is watching and watching and then eventually says, you know what, by two weeks from now, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to say that you have capacity. So you're going to have to go now. So you can have made, we've had cases for people with dementia. The other thing is with the final consent waiver, you know, those very people should now be able to have a final consent waiver. Well, that's the thing because we also see in this country, lots of people having to take their own life prematurely exactly because they're afraid that that final consent waiver won't be waived or won't yeah. be recognized. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where we need the law to be very clear about mm-hmm. what you have to do when you have to do it. Um, but I do think people with dementia, even, you know, there's a disappointment that it hasn't happened yet. And mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to happen in C7. Um, but it's, I think it is coming, but that's still some time ahead. But I think people with dementia now should not um, feel completely abandoned in this context and feel like they have to t- end their lives earlier than they otherwise would, because I think they need to talk to clinicians who understand yeah. the protocol from the Canadian Association of MAID Assessors and Providers and find that way to 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 thread that needle because yeah. I think, I think they can get a lot of people don't understand that they can. I do hope you're right on that. And it very much of course, depends on where you are and your access Absolutely. and, you know, rural communities and all of those things. It's, Absolutely. Uh, and that's it's, why we need to um, educate um, right. the public and not allow the misinformation to chill practice. So we have to educate the public so they know what their rights are. And we have to educate clinicians so they don't tell people, oh, no, you can't have made for dementia. It's like, well, no, actually, you can. And it's not as good as we would like. Like we want the kind of, you know, we want the advanced requests to be earlier. So for one thing, you have much more comfort. You know that it will be there for you. And you don't have this weird 10 minutes to midnight, which is. That's the, the and Ron has talked about this. And, and I also witnessed it in uh, with my own mother is there's underlying anxiety with people with dementia and Alzheimer's because they, uh, y- y- their world makes no sense. They are not who they were. They're not mm-hmm. where they were. They don't, they don't understand. So there's kind of a, um, a constant state of fear and anxiety over things that they may not be able to articulate. Mm. And I certainly know that that's where 
you know, people like Ron are. He doesn't want to go off down this road thinking that it won't be resolved and his wife is going to care for him or be forced to care for him when he's uh-huh. in an extreme uh, uh-huh. state. And, uh-huh. and that troubles everybody. So we need uh-huh. to have this really clear. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we can get there. And I think those who express a lot of the concerns about, you know, it's a different person at the time or how old Mm -hmm. you know and that kind of thing. I think we have to look to the fact that right now people can refuse care. I didn't know. I can in my advanced directive, which is a different kind of instrument. Right. When I have dementia and I'm stage seven, I refuse all food and water. Yeah. I will die in 14 to 21 days. It's just yeah. not a pleasant 14 to 21 days. Exactly. That's that's what's changing. It's not yeah. whether I'm going to end up dead or not. It's whether I yeah. end up dead through what we call VSED, which mm-hmm. is in my directive now, or yeah. whether it's made, you know, which is a much more pleasant and yes. Uh, and less morally distressing for everybody involved. Yeah, I think for a lot of people. And, and you know, I just know of a, a young woman this week at, uh, uh, you know, mid-30s who chose this and her final time was with her family and close friends. She had a irremediable uh, condition. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it gave her peace of mind knowing she could do that and not live through the descent into hell. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The comfort that knowing made is available to you in the future cannot yeah. be overstated. Explain to me, maybe you can, maybe you can't. Uh, <laughs> there, I think the government has all but conceded the unconstitutionality of the, uh, the issue of mental illness by saying the sunset clause will, you know, there'll be a sunset clause and in two years this will will carry on as if this is, a pro, uh, you know, the, an appropriate thing to do. If that side of it is unconstitutional because you're denying people rights and definitions are unclear, then why does the same um, unconstitutionality apply to this, this catch-22, this situation with... Um, uh, with dementia and Alzheimer's, like it, it isn't the whole question that it's unconstitutional. Isn't that what the Supreme Court said? Well, it, it's trickier with advance requests. Okay, the constitutionality of it is trickier. I I've been very vocal to say, you know, when they introduced reasonably foreseeable, I said, you know, I just wouldn't even ask this on a constitutional law exam because it would be too easy. <laughs> and I said the same thing with the mental illness, right? It's yeah. just too easy. It's clearly discriminatory, um, and it can't be. It can't be saved. That's not as clear to me on advance requests because you have it. You, you have a different group. Um, you have different justifications. You have different complexities and uncertainties. Um, so I think my sense would be, and this is why I said I don't know that we'll end up with litigation yeah. because I think the moral argument. Uh, for advance requests is so strong. And I think the public support for it is so strong. And I think the ability, our ability to craft a regime which works well and reflects the, the um, you know, the desire for consistency as between how we approach with refusals of treatment and even food mm-hmm. and water and made will take us to a policy decision 
to allow advance requests. I mean, we've got final consent waiver now. Yeah. What brought you to the table on this? Is this personal experience? Is it a question that intrigued you both of law and medicine? What, yeah. Why do I, you spend all this time? Why do I spend all this time? <laughs> uh, I have I have a passion for fighting for and actually, I've been lucky enough that it's not been my rights in this context. I haven't needed this and I don't have any uh, horrible life circumstances that sort of power this. It's it's that I mean, ironically, because people sometimes have trouble believing this. I actually started in palliative care when I was right. an undergrad. I was a palliative care volunteer because I was very interested in medicine and and that was an opportunity and it just seemed amazing. And I, I started there and I see all of this as entirely consistent. That's why I've always felt palliative care and maid are completely complementary. Um, but so I started in, I started caring yeah. about how people die. And then I ended up, you know, getting the tools of law. I went through philosophy first. So I was absolutely mm-hmm. about the ethics of it. Um, and then I went into law and I suddenly had tools, excuse me. So tools that made me able to fight for these rights. And so I've just been fighting for them ever since. And at a certain point, maybe I'll get to stop and (laughs) (laughs) we'll we'll have this done, but it is a real, I mean, I think you've really put your finger on it. It's a false dichotomy between access to palliative care everyone believes and supports that notion Mm -hmm. and 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 made that to me they're part of a continuum Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the other thing that's entirely consistent is supporting access to made and supporting increasing services and supports for persons Mm -hmm. with disabilities and persons with mental illness i know no person who supports made who doesn't support that yeah and i wish i could you know, be finished with the maid battles and turn the same energy to to the next question. <laughs> the supports and services for mental illness. And, you know, they're, they're entirely consistent. I um, asked um, Daryl this question just at the end of our conversation. So I'm going to ask mm-hmm. you too. But yeah. uh, so we have all of this political support. Uh, decisions have been made. The Supreme Court is on the record. The public is behind it. Why are the politicians so reluctant and so slow? Well, yeah, I asked um, former Senator Carstairs this many years ago because in the context of just straight up made, not these sort of tougher aspects of it, uh, I couldn't understand why have we had decades of majority support for this and nobody mm-hmm. will do it. Why, why are politicians not doing what the public want them to do? And uh, she laughed and called me naive and and explained <laughs> that her theory was it's about single issue voting and that people who support made do not single issue vote on that. They're going to vote for whatever the economy, whatever. Yeah. But right to life voters are much more inclined to be single issue voters and much more inclined to target um, in target in specific writings. And so she thinks it's a much, it's, it's this oddly dangerous issue, mm-hmm. much like the other issues that we've had to have the courts force parliament to move on same sex marriage, abortion, right. Made. These are things that are, so I, it makes sense to me that theory it's they're sort of mm-hmm. voters. So it's just the, the politics, the raw politics of the price you pay for doing this. Um, doesn't align with 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 public interest and what the public wants. Uh, so I think that that's 
I think that's why it's as good a theory as I've ever heard. Yes, it absolutely is. And Sharon Carcier has a lot of experience on uh, on these <laughs> issues. Exactly. It's why I, t- I took her word for it. And then yep, like, oh, for sure. Going to court that's, <laughs> how we have, that's what we have yep, to do. That's what and we have to do. That's what we will do. And we'll we'll keep doing that um, where we need to. And, you know, this uh, within this whole sphere of end of life work, I, I always do try to work with first with the government or with Mm -hmm. the party or with, um, and then it's, if you can't, then you say, well, then I will see you in court. And that's what's happened. That happened with Carter. It happened with Truchon. Let's hope we don't have to go back there again. I I couldn't agree more. And we'll just uh, see what happens. Uh, The Senate is not sitting. The House of Commons has a week off, so we'll be back uh, mid-March and see if there can't be some more reasonable resolution of this. Wonderful to talk to you, Dr. Downey. I know you've done such good work in this field, and I, I want to personally thank you for it, and thank you for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, and I want to thank you for your persistence on the advance requests file. Yes, uh, I'm kind of like a dog with a bone on this one. Yeah. Yeah. Hashtag persistent. We just carry on. Hashtag persistent. Dr. Jocelyn Downey, uh, professor of law and medicine at Dalhousie University. Thanks again. My pleasure. And that's it for No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen for today.